<laughs> All right, I didn't hear a bell, but we're past seven, so we're going to go ahead and get started. I yeah. uh, just want to say good evening, rather chilly good evening um, to everyone. Thanks for coming out tonight. Thank you for being here. This is our 12th session of this class, Spirit in the Flesh. And tonight we're going to be talking about the implications of our spirit nature on worship. Just as a caveat to begin, uh, the word implication meaning what is implied or maybe what is not said outright. Some of the things we're going to be talking about tonight are things that, as I was preparing, I was trying to be as diligent as possible and really study some of the scriptures. I do have a bit of scriptures we're going to be going through tonight. Uh, there will be some parallels that I draw and some things I bring out of the text. I'm going to try to show you scripturally where I'm pulling from. But I do want you to understand that when we're talking about implications, we're talking about things that um, are being drawn out of from different parts of the text and maybe not exactly explicit, meaning that maybe you don't quite see it the same way. And I completely understand that, but I do want to be very clear that I will be doing my best um, to show where I'm drawing that from. So if anyone has any questions, either during class or afterwards, feel free to talk to me more and uh, I'd love to carry on that conversation. So we're going to be going through that tonight, but before we begin, I've asked Chad if he wouldn't mind opening us up with a word of prayer, so we'll go ahead and do that. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chad. All right, so we'll go ahead and get started tonight. Uh, one of the verses we've brought up a few different times in the classes that we've had is John 4, and it's this dialogue that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he says in verse 23, Yeah, the time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seek. So we kind of use that as one of our base texts to talk about Jesus um, mentioning that there's going to be something on the horizon, something that is going to replace this geographic locality, these places of worship, with a different kind of worship that is going to uh, look different than anything that's come before. And we've kind of gone through that. So we're talking about the word specifically worship. God is spirit and his worshipers most, must worship in spirit and in truth. So we're going to be talking specifically about what that might look like tonight, how that is reflected, and some of the things that we see in the New Testament that bears that out. So there is a key verse that I want to use specifically for this class, and it is a writing from 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, and it's a section of verses, a little bit lengthy, but uh, there's a lot of good stuff to go over. I think most of us will be familiar with it. This is going to be uh, 1 Peter 2, and I'm actually going to be reading uh, verses 4 through 12. So it begins, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, and uh, this begins a quote from Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
and a, stump, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And the reason I chose this verse is because it talks about, not only in general terms, this battle that we've been discussing between the spirit and the flesh, but it talks about the church and what goes on in the church. And while there's other verses in the Bible that describe what the church is, these verses kind of specifically, more narrowly, say what the church does. And you also have, uh, go back, you have these allusions to a temple, right? It's talking about stones that are used um, to build things, right? And that Jesus, the chief cornerstone, <coughs> the thing that this whole thing has been built on, the church itself has been built on, was at first despised and rejected, and yet it's become something great. Not something physical, but it's been built up into something uh, remarkable, something that will stand. And that is the church. That is something that we all take part in. And just as Jesus is the cornerstone, we, it says, are living stones. And just like a building cannot stand or be an actual structure with just a couple of stones or uh, scattered stones, we must be all together. There is a communal experience that is worship that makes up the church. And you have this idea of, once again, not a physical temple, but a spiritual one where the people themselves are the stones. And so you have these temple illusions, but also um, you have allusions to the Exodus. And this is the same thing that God says to his people in Exodus back in uh, chapter 19, verse 6, where he says, You are a chosen people, a chosen race, and you are going to be a kingdom of priests. Very similar. If you remember in the first class I taught, we talked about the covenants that God made with his people and the way that his spirit dwelled with them in the Old Testament. Part of the reason I did that is because there's so many echoes and parallels in the New Testament. And this is one of them. Just as Israel was a chosen people who were to be priests, so are we. We have the same um, description and the same um, job title handed down from God himself. So you have God making Israel a community through covenants. And then in the New Testament, doing the same thing through Jesus Christ, saying that you can be um, a temple, you can have God dwelling in you, but that requires covenant. Covenant with me and covenant with each other. We know there's the covenant of Christianity putting on Christ in baptism, and that brings us into the covenant. And how do we express our uh, selves through worship? Well, we do it with each other. Um, let's see. So there's something kind of bold that Peter is saying here. He's saying that a Christian community or a church, a local church, receives the same glory that was received uh, in the temple of the Old Testament. And it's a glory that is inaccessible by any other means, meaning that this church is now the new dwelling place for God's glory. And you think about um, verses like, 
or stories like in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah comes into the temple and he has this great vision and he sees God in the temple and he sees the train of the robe running through it and the uh, angels are singing and this big emotional scene plays out and he's transformed by it and transfixed. And we think about, well, the glory of God doesn't really manifest itself in that way. We don't see things like that when we come to church. and We don't generally expect to. But the glory of God still dwells in the church in the same way that it does. Just because it doesn't manifest itself that way doesn't mean that it doesn't have the same power and that it doesn't have the ability to change our lives and to transform us into something in much the same way that it always has. And that's something that I think we might, you know, offhandedly hear or think about every now and then, but the implication that the glory of God is in this presence, <clears throat> uh, or the presence of God is among us when we come to worship. Um, very powerful. Uh, I think, it, I can't remember exactly where it is, but the verse in Matthew where it talks about uh, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be also, is this idea that church is supposed to be multiple people coming together in a covenant relationship. Uh, meeting God through Jesus requires uh, spirituality as well as theology, is this idea that if you have a Bible, right, we would all agree the Word of God is what you need for salvation. This is how you come to know Jesus, how you come to know God. And you can go in a closet somewhere, you can go in a space and read this by yourself, and you might even be able to understand it to the best of your ability. But your, that your comprehension of it is going to depend on a few factors. It's going to depend on, well, one, how well you know how to read your literacy, uh, at the most practical sense, it's also going to depend on your life experience. It's going to depend on how well you know the context of um, the times that the Bible was written in. So there's a variety of different factors, and you are limiting yourself when you decide that the Bible is something you're going to go at it alone. The church is this repository of Christians from all different walks of life who have had different experiences, are all different ages, from different places, who understand the Bible and have different understandings of the Bible, but they all come together to share it. That's what we're doing right now. This is a Bible class. Um, I'll get to you in just a second. And so this idea of reading the Bible um, or studying the Bible you can do it by yourself, but that's only going to get you so far. You're just one stone. When we come together and we worship and we share the Bible, that is practicing the building up of the stones. <coughs> yes, Jamie. I was just thinking about how is the glory of the Lord shown in the church, um, just like it was in the temple. And I think when we go to the basic fact that God is love, and love is a relational um, attribute and it makes sense we have a triune God right because God is love and how can you be a God of love if you're just singular you know mm -hmm. you can't it's hard to love anything if you're just by yourself so God is love and I think that is how the glory is manifested within the church is that we have these relationships that we can serve and show that love of God and that is ultimately his <clears throat> greatest glory is his love yeah, I absolutely agree. That's one of the ways in which God 
breaks through now, is uses each other, um, and this love and this communal relationship that flows from one another. That's a great point. Uh, other thoughts or comments on anything we've talked about thus far? Okay. Um, some of the things we talk about is, I want to be careful using this word, um, an institution is because, you know, I don't want to get into the whole debate of you have different types of churches, denominational, non-denominational, institutional, non-institutional, but I'm using the word um, in a general sense here. There might be a better word that I just uh, can't grasp right now. But in terms of, um, I guess, institutions or things started in the world, there is only one that is started um, by divinity, by Christ himself, and that is the church. I guess system is a word we can use if you don't like that one. Uh, the church of Christ is the only one that is started from on high, I guess you could say. It is designed in a way that nothing else has been by, uh, in the history of man. Uh, any other organization, perhaps that's a better word, uh, any other organization is going to be susceptible to uh, the fallibility of man because it is set up in a way, um, it could be set up pretty well, but there's always going to be problems with it. And this is by no means me saying that there are no problems in the church. The church is comprised of humans, and we all know that human beings can be very human at times. We can all make mistakes, and the church by that very token, is not going to be perfect. But the system in which everything is set up is perfect, and it is supposed to work for the benefit of um, its members. And uh, when you follow the organization, and when you follow the outline that has been laid out for us in the New Testament, that is the optimal way uh, to practice worship, is that that is how you get the results that are intended for you, is by following what we have outlined for us. And that's another part of worship, is following what has been put forth uh, from on high. So, one of the things about worship is that if this is a place where God's glory dwells, then it is a place that we want to be. Um, and there is an element of Christianity uh, that is heavily uh, dependent upon attendance to a congregation. Is We use the term membership as people who have decided to fellowship with a church have said, this is the worship that I want to take a part of. I want to be able to come and be edified and be built up and also do that same for other people. And like I just was talking about earlier, you can't do that exactly on your own. There is a part of Christianity that requires other people, and so it requires you to be where Christians are. And this isn't just the, you know, the old Bible thumping, you need to go to church, don't miss church. But what we're talking about is that if we are instruments of the Spirit, if we are being led by the Spirit to interact with each other, then you don't exactly know what God has planned for you, and you don't know how he's going to use other people to help you. And you won't be able to understand that and kind of get a sense of that unless you're going to be around his people. If you remember, Thomas was late to the upper room. He missed the initial party, and then he missed the resurrected Christ. And he was, you know, 
kind of late on the draw. And now we call him Doubting Thomas forever just because he uh, wasn't around. Um, you know, I'm being somewhat sarcastic there, but the idea is that something amazing happened when those Christians were together. The resurrected Christ showed up. And while I'm not exactly saying that, once again, that's going to be the case, that we're going to physically behold something like that, we don't know uh, what we're going to hear in a sermon that might be exactly what we need to have uh, said to us at that point in our lives. We don't know the kinds of conversations that we're going to have. We don't know what is going to happen here that God could intend for us uh, to experience for the benefit of our lives. And we're not giving God an opportunity to use the Spirit in worship if we're not here. So um, that's kind of the point I wanted to make with that. Any thoughts or comments? Yes. So for the purposes of this class, are you restricting the discussion of worship to what happens in a collective? Are you, are you restricting it to collective worship? Um, not necessarily. Uh, but basically everything I have prepared is more of a collective sense. Okay. Not everything, but uh, feel free to, uh, yeah, if you have a comment. Well, if, if that were the case, if it were intended to be talking only about collective worship, I just wanted to interject that worship in the broadest sense of the word doesn't necessarily imply a, a collectivity. Um, this is true. Worship in the broadest sense and the way that it's most often used in the scriptures is uh, is literally just means to bow one to literally means to bow before mm -hmm. um, But it has with it the connotation not just of bowing physically in your body, but also bowing your heart Towards something someone that you believe is is uh, superior and worship worthy so I just wanted to to interject, just if we wanted to broaden the conversation beyond what takes place here, that for example, Abraham, when he worshiped, uh, Abraham's servant, when he worshiped, when um, uh, God revealed himself, or his will to, to Abraham's servant um, by answering his prayer, his immediate response was to fall down and to worship. You know, that's, that's a different sense of the word than the kind of collective worship that we're talking about here. So it'd just be a completely different discussion. And I just wanted to mention this is not the only, if we're talking about collective worship, this is not the only way the word is used in scripture. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Jarrell brings up a good point is that I'm talking about it. There were definitely some points I wanted to make specifically looking at this uh, verse in First Peter and sort of the way I had it, uh, <laughs> organized tonight is talking about communal worship or the types of worship we do with each other. Not everything that we're going over tonight falls within that purview, but yes, um, if anybody has a comment about um, how we worship outside of just the congregation or how our lives are worshiped or how us as Christians um, showing uh, reverence to God, his superiority through us, how that can work in our lives, um, absolutely feel free to um, comment on that as well. Uh, it's not, you know, restricted to just this. Any other comments or questions? Uh, no, about sir, I'm not trying to derail you or, or to take over the class. No, no, no. I understand your intent. No, I appreciate your clarification. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to make sure everyone feels free uh, to comment any sort of uh, insights they would have on worship. All right, anything else?
Okay, so I do want to go over some specific things that stood out to me as I was uh, reading this verse, is or these verses, is um, in verse 9, there's sometimes um, words in the Bible that just one or two words that you don't think about, but it changes the whole thing. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. <clears throat> you are a priesthood. It doesn't say you have a priesthood. It says you are a priesthood. And I think this is what distinguishes uh, the church from other uh, organized denominations is that there are those who believe that they um, have in their church set up for them a priesthood that they are not part of. That there is an intercessor uh, who works on their behalf through prayer or whatever else, uh, what other means, and that they are dependent on that human intercessor to work on their behalf. That's not what this verse in 1 Peter is saying. It's saying, you are a royal priesthood. You yourselves are the priests. And that's really important because that frees us, right? That means that our um, <clears throat> communication with God is not dependent on other people. It's dependent on us and us alone. So we are priests. <clears throat> we are chosen. It says we're a chosen people, just like Israel. Not a choice people. It's not that we're better or greater. It's that God has picked us, or we have chosen to um, enter into this covenant. <clears throat> and <clears throat> by this uh, distinction here, there is no longer a spiritual elite. That is the difference between us and Israel, is that there was a hierarchy of spirituality. You had high priest and priest, and on down like that. There's no longer that because we have Jesus as the ultimate high priest, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And by that same token, these verses seem to say that we also possess each one of those. We are a royal priesthood, royalty there, right? That would have to, have to do with kings. Um, and then this is what more what I was talking about, the implication is something I'd like to bring out. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. <clears throat> there seems to be a bit of um, implications of the prophetic. Is that is what those who prophesied did. Those who had the spirit of God were um, testifying to God's power and what he does and did. And there's a verse um, in Numbers, I think it's Numbers 10... There's a story about two men that were going around the camp <clears throat> of Moses, and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, my throat is drying up here. <clears throat> um, so there's two men going around the camp, and they are prophesying, and some people are going back to Moses, and they're telling him, hey, tell these guys to cut it out. I think it's Joshua, actually, who says, tell these guys to cut it out. They're going around prophesying. You're the only one that, you know, should be doing that. It's your thing. And Moses says, are you kidding me? What they are doing, they have the spirit of God. What they are doing, I wish everybody could do. Don't, you know, don't be jealous for my sake. If I had it my way, everyone would be doing what they were doing. And there's a lot of other New Testament or Old Testament verses I could show you 
that basically bring out the idea that those who were prophets were the people who were speaking through the Spirit of God. And now that the Spirit is uh, indwelling in the members of the church, in the same way we can also be said to be prophets as our job is to do this exact thing. Because we are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. So just as Jesus is our ultimate prophet, priest, and king, so we are also um, partaking in that royalty, that priesthood. Um, so just something kind of interesting that I was thinking about. There was verses in the New Testament that, thank you so much. <clears throat> yeah, there's verses in the New Testament that talk about uh, people with the Spirit uh, speaking the Word of God. And it, it does seem, the more you study the New Testament, to be the idea or the main way that the idea of the Spirit is expressed, is that He is the way that God communicates. Jesus himself was said to have the Spirit uh, after he's baptized and filled with the Spirit. And Luke 4 tells us that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's when the testing and the tempting begins. And so you could also make the argument, um, I think, that Jesus' spirit was the Holy Spirit. And that the spirit he sent after him was uh, his spirit himself. Is We also talk about, and we'll get into a verse in a little bit, that God dwells with us. Jesus dwells with us, just as the Holy Spirit does. We talk a lot about the Holy Spirit dwelling with us. But, you know, the scriptures also discuss that Jesus and God also well, among us. Um, what else do I have over here? So, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Once again, that's another verse I had up there re-emphasizing uh, the importance of the church and the living stones. Uh, John 14.15-17, this is Jesus here talking to his apostles. And he says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. Now, I want to make sure we're looking at this verse in context. Like I said, this is Jesus speaking to his apostles. And I think what he says here is that he's going to give them the spirit to help them teach and form the gospel, is that these were the men who were going to be teaching and writing what we have in front of us, so the Spirit was going to help them in that way, is that they were going to make, be uh, sharing the good news, sharing what we have to study, and it needed to be infallible, and it needed to be complete. It wasn't enough for the apostles to only get 75 or 80% or even 90%. They needed to have all of it. So the Spirit was going to help them in this specific way. I do uh, want to make sure I emphasize on that the Spirit definitely is a part of us and it's in us. That is undeniable. But in terms of how it worked with the apostles, I think, uh, in the context here, it's a little different. Uh, but it says he has the Spirit of truth that's going to be in them. And so they receive the Spirit of truth. They go out and do their teaching. Um, and begin their ministry, and we get to see, after Jesus, the early church history, how they do this, starting with Pentecost and onward, 
is um, they go out and teach, and they do it in that spirit of truth that's talking about. And now that we have the words, we have the gospel and the writings, we ourselves continue on that tradition by the words themselves leading us in the spirit of truth. So, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's the spirit of truth we were just talking about. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. So God gives the spirit of truth to help the apostles um, formulate the Bible, the New Testament. And now that we have the New Testament, we have the spirit of truth in front of us. And it's the scriptures that we have here, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, so on, and says that the man of God may be perfect. So that is one of the most fundamental ways that we are worshiping in spirit, not just collectively, but as Darrell said, that we are living by the spirit, be led by the spirit, is that we are studying the scriptures that was given in the spirit of truth. Uh, any thoughts or comments on anything so far? All right, we'll go ahead and continue on. Um, one of the effects of having the Spirit <clears throat> or uh, being led by the Spirit is this idea of discernment. <clears throat> is that Paul is talking to the Corinthians here. He seems to be getting a little sarcastic with them um, because there's this debate among people or this kind of jab you can say uh, concerning Paul is that these people think that they are very spiritual, that they are these wonderfully gifted people. They have spiritual gifts and that they um, are very talented. Perhaps they're talented speakers and they're saying, I don't know if Paul is as talented or as spiritual as we are because he can't talk and speak the way we can. You know, he writes these fancy letters and they sound good, but in appearance, he's just not as bold as we are. And so this is Paul's response here. He says, if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. So he's kind of challenging them, right? He's saying, well, if you really think you are that spiritual, here's the text. Can you tell that what I am writing to you, I'm speaking to you, is from the Spirit? That is how you will know. If you really think that I am speaking of my own accord, or that I'm not on your level spiritually, well, that says more about you than it does me. Um, in much the same token, when we have the Spirit, we need to make sure that we are, um, like the last verse was saying, uh, there, there's reproof or correction that we need to make sure that we are doing when the gospel or the scriptures are presented to us, right? Because if there is inspiration in the scriptures as we believe they are, and somebody is going to twist or distort them in a way that is not in accordance with how they are to be used, we should be able to pick up on that. That is part of having the spirit, is this discernment. Um, that's something that, among the other gifts, we need to make sure that we are exercising is we are testing the spirits, as it's also written. Uh, making sure that we are not being carried away uh, by every wind of doctrine that comes through. Uh, Romans 8, 26, 27. I think Romans 8, for my money, is probably the biggest um, 
collection of verses where we can learn kind of what the Spirit is, how it works. It says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Some of your verses or versions might say something like, uh, with words too uh, impossible to speak, or with words uh, that we are not able to um, speak ourselves, put into words. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for us, for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Once again, that idea of intercession, um, it says that is the Spirit's role, once again, is that we don't exactly know how to speak to God. We're not on his level. We don't know a lot of times what to ask for. We don't know. Um, we just don't have the full picture. We are living moment by moment, and God knows everything, and he knows how it will you know, work out for us. The Spirit, in whatever way, I think a lot of this has to do with that spiritual reality that we just have trouble understanding sometimes. The Spirit, in some ways, working through us, He's taking what we want and somehow giving that back to God in a way that is going to um, communicate with him in a productive manner. It, it intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God, meaning this is what God intended. Not for someone else to be here um, interceding for us, but for us to uh, have the spirit in this way. Any comments or questions? Yes. Well, this has been pointed out before, but I think, again, it's worth reminding, being reminded of that the Spirit is referred to as himself, that mm -hmm. this is a person, this is a person of God, and that passage in John that we went over, it, it, it uses the pronouns him, him, he, mm -hmm. and here, himself. So again, it's, it's not an it that we're talking about, we're talking about the Spirit of, of God. Sure, yeah. Like I said, the spirit of uh, Jesus um, as well is that, and another verse here, John 3.34 um, talks about uh, the words of God uh, were spoken by Jesus, uh, is that the spirit <clears throat> was delivered uh, by Jesus through God. Um, so yeah, the spirit is a member of the Trinity, and uh, yeah, that's something to keep in mind here. All right, so um, Ephesians 1, uh, 13 talks about another aspect of the Spirit is how uh, the Spirit marks us or, uh, you know, denotes us as members of the church. Is sometimes people say, well, how do I know that I'm really a member of the church? You know, there's not like a green, you know, check mark that pops up above my head after I'm baptized. I don't hear... You no, know, you don't literally hear the people singing, so how do you know? Well, Ephesians says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And so there's this idea that we are in the Spirit, and that is um, salvation. It's that uh, the Holy Spirit marks us in some way or it seals us <clears throat> and that is the uh, denotation that we were talking about last week with Jarrell that there definitely <clears throat> is an idea of being outside of Christ right and that 
necessarily being saved doesn't mean that you are permanently in Christ, but your relationship uh, with Christ and the way you conduct yourself going forward does. Uh, let's see what else do I have here. Um, study of Romans 8 here. <clears throat> I highlighted some stuff. Romans 8, 9 through 11 says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. Once again, flesh and spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. <clears throat> so how do I know if the spirit of God is living with me? And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. <clears throat> and if the spirit of him who, was raised, who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who has raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Jesus died and was brought back to life. How did that happen? It was the spirit. <clears throat> we are in the spirit. How are we going to be brought back to life just as Jesus did, who was the first fruits of our salvation? The exact same way. If we believe that Christ was raised from the dead, then there should be no doubt in our minds that we too will be raised from the dead if we truly have the Spirit. Uh, any questions? Okay, uh, some things to note is that he describes... And it seems to be repeating for emphasis the different ways <clears throat> of the Spirit. He calls it um, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Christ in you, uh, Spirit gives life, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus. Once again, saying, talking about it in different ways, different descriptors, but they're all the same, right? The member of the Godhead, it is uh, the same through and through. Uh, the Spirit of Christ is in us, and that is what is going to uh, have saved us and uh, will resurrect us to life. <clears throat> uh, John 6, 63, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and of life. Once again, uh, this emphasis on words is that the Spirit is the words that we have that um, have been left to us by the spirit of truth is that we need to make sure that we are fulfilling a responsibility to know these words, right? There are people that can claim to have the spirit of God or that they are filled with the spirit, walking by the spirit, and yet they can't tell you, you know, John 3.16. Uh, they don't know where to find it. And I don't know that scripture really indicates that there is the possibility of having the spirit without knowing the Word of God. It almost seems to be equating the Spirit with the Word of God, is that we are going to have the Spirit in us if we can get the words in us, is that it's important to make sure that we are studying and that we are knowing what, uh, what has been given to us, um, that inspired Scripture, that God-breathed Scripture. But by that same token, um, you can have somebody who knows the scripture who does not have the spirit, and we see that all the time. Um, yes? I'm glad you finished your sentence that way. You know, there are people who set up a false equivalency between the, the, the having the word in you and having the spirit in, in you. But if that were true, then people who knew the word of God would necessarily then have the spirit in them, would it not? And yes. those who have, a, can you, 
have more of the Spirit of God because you have more of the Word in you? You know, it's that kind of false equivalency where, it, where people get tripped up. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, the Spirit is this was the source of the Word. Yes. And it's impossible to separate the Spirit from His words, right? Mm -hmm. I know you in part because I've heard you speaking, and that's part of what helps me to know who you are. But your words are distinct from you. They are not the same thing as you. If, mm -hmm. I, if I say, well, I, I saw something that Kyle wrote, so I know him. Well, that would be false. Just because mm -hmm. I know something you said doesn't mean I know you. So while it is important to understand the connection between the spirit and the word, to say that they're one and the same is, I think, is a huge mistake. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um... Yeah, I, I definitely don't want to make it seem like I'm saying the spirit no, you is saying that. I, okay. That, that's my point. Gotcha. Um, yeah, there's definitely an equivalency that uh, I'll be careful not to draw there. But uh, like like I was saying, the word was delivered uh, via the spirit, and uh, like I said, to have the spirit in you, I think it is also important that we get the words and the knowledge and the intent <coughs> in us as well. Let's see. Go ahead. Uh, something else here. Yes. Uh, Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Uh, word, key word there, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Once again, this seems to be talking about worship. Uh, not only for our own sake, but uh, something I don't think we talk about enough is how the Holy Spirit on uh, having the spirits is also a benefit to non-Christians, right? How do people outside of Christ come to be in Christ? Well, it's us um, using what we have, using Christ in our lives to, uh, you know, teach, to do these very things. When we have visitors come through our doors and uh, participate with us, they are going to be singing hymns and songs from the Spirit, they're going to be hearing uh, lessons from the Spirit. And that is kind of, once again, talking about that priesthood, that prophecy, this idea that we are going to be teaching them and bringing them into Christ uh, with our worship. And that's a big implication that our spirit nature has on worship, is that it is for the benefit of non-Christians and people outside of Christ just as much as it is for us, because that's ultimately what we want, is to have as many. Is that the full, full time? Yeah. Okay. Uh, any last comments or questions uh, as we wrap up tonight? Okay, thank you for your attention. Um, I hope this was uh, a uh, productive discussion, uh, maybe spurred some thoughts. Uh, like I said, I'm always open to hear uh, any thoughts or questions afterwards as well, so thank you. Check out.